Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. Thank you for joining me in this podcast series where I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice for your medical practice. In this podcast episode, we continue a cardiovascular theme inviting John Council back to talk about secondary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD. And to recap, it's known that 1.2 million Australians have one or more, or more conditions related to ASCVD, including coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and peripheral vascular disease. And that one Australian has a myocardial infarction every 10 minutes. Once these conditions are established, the goals of secondary prevention are to manage clinically significant ASCVD and to prevent the onset of disease manifestations. So the key points of secondary prevention of ASCVD include one, smoking cessation, the strong association between smoking exposure, active or passive, and ASCVD is well established. Two, lipid management. So for patients with previous cardiovascular disease events, Compared with placebo, statins reduce all-cause mortality by 19%, coronary heart disease mortality by 27%, myocardial infarction by 27%, and strokes by 16%. And the benefits are most significant for high-intensity or high-dose statins. Three, antiplatelet therapy. The use of low-dose aspirin results in a 20% relative risk reduction of ASCVD with just a 1% risk of major bleeding. The P2Y12 inhibitors... Prasugrel and Ticrogelor are used in combination with aspirin for at least one month where we have implanted the bare metal stent and for one year in combination with aspirin post-drug eluting stent placement. In the absence of stent placement as above, there's really no benefit in this combination. The P2Y12 inhibitors are also used when aspirin is not tolerated, but they're expensive. They don't provide any major benefit over aspirin otherwise. Anticoagulation, number four, is used with chronic atrial fibrillation, mechanical heart valves, and venous thromboembolism. Number five, blood pressure control, critical. The objective is to have a systolic BP below 130 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic below 80 millimeters of mercury by using a beta blocker long-term, adding in an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, or an allosterone blocker as required. Six, lifestyle modification, aiming for a healthy BMI, using the DASH or Mediterranean diet, Activating an effective cardiac rehabilitation program with structured exercise. And studies show that cardiac rehabilitation may reduce mortality of up to 25% compared to medical therapy alone. So there are six very important points we have to consider in secondary prevention. And to discuss uh, these aspects of secondary prevention in more detail, please join this conversation with experienced cardiologist Dr. John Council. I'd like to welcome you back, John Council, to Everyday Medicine. Um, we had a really interesting discussion on primary prevention of coronary artery disease, and I'd like now to focus our discussion on secondary prevention of coronary artery disease. I think this is a very important topic. Can you tell me who are we talking about when we talk about secondary prevention of coronary artery disease? Well, I shouldn't say just coronary artery disease, should I? I should say cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease, disease is better, but because it translates both things. Yes. I mean, what we found in this coronary period of intense experimentation over the last four years, it also translates into stroke. 20 and 30% reduction in risk of stroke, stroke yeah. uh, which we didn't expect, especially from lipids. Lipid aortic aneurysms. Aortic aneurysms, dilation of the ascending aorta, probably renal disease. So 
it's all sort of part of the unified vascular system, but and it's come out of this response to the coronary epidemic of the 50s and 60s and the catastrophes then. But yes, when I was at coronary care, the coronary care registrar at Prince Henry's, the average life expectancy with those STEMIs, and I can still remember some of these young men, was going to be about four years. So most of them weren't mm. going, if they were in their 40s and 50s, they were, certainly weren't going to make 60. Mm. If they had a big anterior wall, in fact, an anterior STEMI was, say, a bit of fascicular block or something, about 70% of them died in the first year. Mm, so it was, it was catastrophic, and we didn't really know how to stop it. And um, the goalposts for lipids then were a cholesterol of up to 6.5 was normal, and people, the UK doctors in particular, weren't sure that it was relevant at all. Uh, we've, we used, they usually left coronary care on a blood pressure-lowering agent like Alnamet. Um, mm. We were playing around with warfarin and aspirin but didn't, weren't quite sure whether it was helpful. Mm. Um, and we, we, we did promote improvement in diet, less animal fats and mm. prevention of smoking, but the patients did really poorly. And then we got into the large-scale trials which showed this progressive reduction in risk, especially with aspirin combined with early reperfusion therapy. That was quite dramatic. If you'd had a plaque rupture, that is, an, a, a, a thrombogenic event, um, and then the lipid story started and those trials ran through the sort of 80s and 90s and they were well, they were considered to be well done trials mm. now, uh, as were the aspirin trials the, mm. the, um, and um, pretty consistent 20% reduction in risk for every 20% or so reduction in cholesterol. Mm. But it, uh, it, the lowering of LDL was clearly the, the more important component of that, as we've discussed before. Uh, once you've had that coronary event, you put your hand up and said that mm. LDL's a threat for me. If I don't get that LDL lower than what it was, mm. substantially lower, I would be, look, from our previous experience, yes. uh, it's only a matter of time before I have the next event. Mm. You know, we used to say to our coronary patients when they had their bypass back in the late 60s and 70s, We'll see you in 10 years. And now sometimes we didn't because they died mm. about half. But if they did, if they, a few of them survived because they stopped smoking. Most of them did stop smoking. Yes. Um, but they were always back with progressive disease until we got the statins into the mix. And so... Um, we've, got, we've got a mixture of the, the high-intensity, moderate-intensity, low-intensity statins too, haven't we? That, yeah. And we're talking about using the high-intensity statins generally for secondary prevention. But is, if that's, is that based purely on the LDL levels, John? Are we, we it's based primarily on the LDL levels. Mono send everybody home on a Torvastatin, a high-intensity statin, 80 milligrams, so a maximal dose. Because there was one, there's a one or two trials showing if you just drive, the lower you drive it, the lower the risk. But on the other hand, I've got quite a few patients on Pravacol because Pravastatin was the statin we used in the lipid trial mm. who have excellent, truly excellent lipids on 20 milligrams of Pravastatin. You know, their L, the L, LDL's one, one and a half. So mm. why on earth would you change them? Yes. And um, so I think it's more the number. The Canadian Cardiac Society used the, you've had a cholesterol-related event, we need to change the, your LDL substantially. And if it was a very high LDL, their recommendation was just to drop it in half. Okay. So some people have that sort of approach. Mm. And I must say, I like to see, I think that plays some relevance in the whole thing. Do, do you think, you know, we were talking about this in the primary prevention, but if you're dropping LDL, you're trying to prevent LDL entry into the internet. Yeah. Really what we're trying to do is prevent oxidised 
oxidation yeah. of the LDL, aren't we? Those yeah. very small dense yeah. LDL particles again, which are, you know we're not measuring that yet. And I yeah. think, my, I, you know, who am I to say? But perhaps that is where we're going to go at some point. But let's suppose we do drop the LDL to try and stabilise the atheroma. It's going to take a long time, isn't it, for that to be realised? You know, what, no, what are we trying to do actually here? We're trying to re reduce the LDL. It seems like a pretty quick effect, actually. Yeah, when to you, to stabilise the athlete. Yeah, it does seem. Yeah, it does seem like a pretty quick effect. So what? And so you know, we saw these in the trials. We saw you know quite a rapid drop in coronary events. Coronary events, even in even in the west coast of Scotland trial, which was. I think it was second, you know, in Glasgow, a high-risk area for yeah, coronary disease. Yeah. Um, quite a significant rate. The interesting thing we saw in that trial was at the end of the trial, which was a positive trial with a weak statin, and it was all men with a lot. I can't remember if they had events. I, oh, it was a primary prevention study. They had big – so I'm backspacing here. I'm sorry. But it, it was interesting in that there was a legacy effect. They were all offered free statin at the end of the trial, right. and about half of them took it up. But they then, Shepard, who ran this trial, continued to follow them over the next 15 years, 15 yeah. years or so. Yeah. Yeah. And they found that the people who were on the real drug, not the stat, not the placebo during the trial, continued to do better mm -hmm. than the people who, even though they weren't on it. So there was some legacy effect of having spent five years on a stat. So maybe some stabilisation of that. So I think there is some stabilisation yeah. to plaque and you buy yourself a bit more time. Because you can have plaque there. It's only when it ruptures that exactly. it's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And these patients I've got, in secondary prevention who, you know, I, like the Turkish woman who was actually, that I mentioned in the previous yes, presentation, yeah. was there was Valvia. But I've got quite a few of my coronary patients who came in their 40s and they're now in their 80s. Mm. Um, so it's, it's nearly 40 years since I first met them. Mm. Mm. They must, That's a long they must have a lot of plaque. And we can't have yeah. stopped all plaque, but it must be relatively stabilised plaque, start plaque that's not prone to rupture yes. because they haven't had events. Or they're also on on anti-planted therapy. So if they do get a rupture, mm. maybe you're preventing mm. the thrombotic events when the subsequent... Yeah, there'll be small small ruptures in the body of the plaque without mm. thrombus in the lumen. Yeah. It's not going to affect your troponin levels. It's going to be asymptomatic. And, you know, it's thought we, we have small um, endothelial disruptions all the time, which just heal with yes. a spot weld yes. of endothelium that we don't even know about. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> it's the spot well that gets out of control <laughs> and forms. <laughs> and again, you know, 50% of those little plaque, plaque erosions, more common in women, ulceration, or fissures, more common in men, become a thrombus that, yes. that either occludes the, the lumen or contracts it substantially or promotes spasm at the same time, and you end up with ischemia. So, John, we've got, we've got antiplatelet therapy. We've got, um, we've got lipid control. What, what about Andy, just backspace on antiplatelet therapy? Because there's been a bit of controversy there. It's basically aspirin for life, right? In most yes. recommendations, there's a guy called McMurray from, or no, it's Cleland or McMurray, one of the senior investigative cardiologists in the UK, has suggested if you've been, if your risk factors have been really well controlled for a number of years, you're not going to get plaque rupture, mm. so you don't need to be on aspirin. But he's he's a little bit alone in that approach. But he's, that's, he's proposing mm. we consider that. I'm certainly, if we got gut bleeding issues, mm. uh, and someone's 10 or 15, some of these long-standing patients I've had with excellent control of lipids and blood pressure, mm. I'm pretty happy to stop their aspirin uh, rather than switch them to clopidogrel. Are the benefits of clopidogrel equivalent? 
to the benefits of aspirin. Do we know that? Yeah, well, they seem to be, and slight, it's slightly more efficient. You could call mm. it a super aspirin that's slightly mm. more efficient in its anti-platelet effect. Without the GI side effects. Without the GI side effects, mm. but a lot more cost. Mm. Yes. But yeah. I think we don't quite know the story of, you know, I think you could argue, uh, coming back to the, the sort of uncertainties about aspirin primary prevention, you know, a lot of us don't need to be on aspirin if we've got everything else well controlled. Yes. And you could argue in the patient, they've had a, a slip up, yes. smoking, atherogenic diet and a plaque rupture. Yeah. Yeah. 10 or 15 years later, do they really still need to be on aspirin? I suspect not. Um, I guess it depends on how, yes, you're, really? you're, you're arguing. If they're really controlling those risk factors, well, they may not need to be. But they do need to be on other anti-atherogenic modalities, and I wouldn't risk in this problem of getting diet right, which is such a yeah, threat in this modern yes. prosperous yes. society who wants to dash out to restaurants every night, um, the, you really, for, you know, I think you'd need everything else you can to help including the RAS blockers as part of the anti-atherogenic cocktail. Tell us about those. How, how are they working? Well, it's an, it, is, it, it is an anti-inflammatory effect that the RAS system is pro-inflammatory. And I'm not quite <laughs> sure how it is, but it's, it's um, been written up a lot by the Germans who've done a lot of work on RAS blockers. And um, I can't tell you the mechanism offhand, but how much of it is just lowering blood pressure has an anti-inflammatory effect on the endothelium. It's, it's more than that. Just like the, the stems have an anti-inflammatory effect yeah, too. Yes. Yeah, there's less inflammatory cells. You know, they did those animal experiments <coughs> and resacrificed the animal and mm, looked mm. at the amount of inflammatory cells in the plaque. Do, do you have a, a favoured RAS blocker that you... Oh, look, go I... What's your go-to? Yeah, I well, my go-to originally, and it still is for heart severe heart failure, are the, are the ACE inhibitors. Mm. We, back in the... They came in onto the market in the mid-'80s, and um, the um, perindopril was probably our clopidogrel... Uh, not clopidogrel. Captopril. Captopril. Captopril and... I wrote up captopril cough. Yeah, captopril, did you? <laughs> captopril <laughs> and perindopril were the first yeah. two in the mid... And I suddenly started to see these big heart attacks getting out of coronary care. We'd already been using beta blockers since mm. the late 70s. Yes, yeah. And uh, most of us were fans of beta blockers, especially with big yeah. heart attacks and uh, damaged ventricles. But we still struggled to get some of those people out of coronary care. You'd see them when they came in. You'd look at their cardiograph and you'd think, oh, hell, we Because of heart failure. And then, yeah, heart failure. And then captopril came along, followed shortly by perindopril, and we started to get those patients out of coronary care. And they really, and we, they're really basic now in chronic heart failure. Mm. The heart failure data is better for the prills than it is for the sardines. Do, do, do you tend to put everyone, uh, in terms of secondary prevention, on a RAS blocker? Is, is yeah, that, that's a routine. Yeah, absolutely so got, routine. So we've got an antiplatelet, yeah. we've got a, yeah. a lipid control, we've got a RAS blocker. And I prevent and them as a vascular hygienic agent because people often say, oh, my blood pressure's all right, what do you want me to take that for? Yeah. I say, well, there are other vascular hygienic benefits, I use right. this rather vague yes. term. Yes, yes. <laughs> and just look so at it, conv it conveys yeah. the intention yeah. and then yeah. you'll vary the dose to, yeah. to, to a dose that they tolerate. That they'll tolerate. Yeah. And I say, well, <clears throat> the odd little light-headed spell, that's fine. Your heart loves low blood pressure. Your arteries mm. love low blood pressure, mm. Um, mm. especially your cerebral arteries. And uh, on the other hand, if it gets too low, you feel a bit But if you never get dizziness, perhaps we're not lowering your blood pressure enough. And in, in these chronic heart failure patients, it's amazing the number of them tolerate blood pressures of 90 to 100. Yes. 
Um, yeah. I do see that often. Well, patients coming in for endoscopy, I was going to say it's a bit different because I've had bowel preps normally with dehydrated them, buggery. Um, so, but, but they're often not, you know, their blood pressure will be 90 or something. They don't feel particularly unwell. Yeah. And I often say, oh, you're okay, you're lightheaded. No, often not. Uh, what about beta blockade? Is that a routinely administered product now for? It certainly is in the first year or two, secondary prevention. If you've got left ventricular dysfunction, if you've had a big enough heart attack for the echo to say mild, even mild, but certainly moderate or severe LV dysfunction, you're probably better on a beta blocker for life. But again, it depends a bit on the heart rates you're running. We come back to that heart rate data. Yes. You know, heart rate, yes. high heart rate is bad for all of us, but it's yes. particularly bad if you've got LV dysfunction. If you haven't got LV dysfunction, you really don't need to stay on a beta blocker long term, especially if there's a, you're not a high heart rate sort of individual. Mm. If you're a high heart rate, high blood pressure sort of individual, you've got to say, well, look, I'm hypersympathetic. What can I do about it? Mm. Mm. Well, commonly they've got too much visceral fat. But mm. the reality is it's hard to get rid of that visceral fat. Mm. And so I keep, tend to keep them on a beta blocker, even though they might push their triglycerides up a tiny bit. Intermittent fasting, John. Yeah, intermittent and avoid, fasting. And yeah. avoiding uh, refined carbohydrates. Yeah, refined carbohydrates. Are People don't like feeling hungry. Yeah. Don't you think that's yeah. half the problem yeah. with diet? Yeah. You've got to be prepared yeah. to feel hungry. Feel no, a bit hungry. Get, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Be a yeah. bit hungry. Be cold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the guys who came sailing with me last few weeks ago, he's, he's an intermittent faster. It, well, he'd have, he'd it's have, interesting, you know. I never thought I'd do it, actually. But I, I really love yeah, it now. Yeah, yeah, he was I feel really good. good. I feel yeah, much better. Yeah, um, yeah much, yeah, much better yeah. for doing it. I'd be better if I did, I think, um, and because I think, I, you know, I've got, as I mentioned before, I'm, I can be on the borderline of the metabolic syndrome. It's probably going to be more relevant for people because the metabolic syndrome potential is an extremely common gene worldwide. Yes, yes. And yet... There are those communities who, in whom it didn't get them into trouble until they get into this modern prosperity. Yes, with, with other, other yeah. lifestyle factors. Because the metabolic yeah. syndrome probably had genetic components that made it, yes. uh, gave it benefits for survival yes. when times were tough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, so it's there for a reason. Once you, get, once you get into prosperity, it bites us on the bum. And, um, but, yeah, I, I guess... Coming, anyhow, I'm diverging a bit. Beta blockers, you could argue, also slightly negative for the met- for the metabolic syndrome. But no, off beta blockers if you don't have LV dysfunction. Yes. So you're ending up ending up on a aspirin and a statin. Do, do, and you, a do you tend to uh, stratify the patients in secondary prevention from those at very high risk to those at sort of a, at just a moderate risk? Is do you do a risk sort of calculation there too in secondary prevention or not? Like yeah, really we discuss. do. I would, I would say that that would be more a person. Generally, we can get their risk factors well controlled. It's very rare for one of my patients still to be smoking mm. uh, so, because mm. I, they know that I wouldn't approve. And I, mm. I, I've, said, uh, I've had a few patients come back to me and reminded me that I'd told them in the early days when I was looking after them with, when they were you know, at death's door, so to speak, mm. with their heart attack, and you had them more vulnerable, that if you want to join my team, you won't be a smoker. <laughs> and if you want to go along with that, my team, I think you'll do well. That's probably the best <laughs> advice. It's, 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 it's very important advice, though, yeah. isn't it? For us? And then you've got to follow that yeah. up. We've been yeah. lucky in Australia yeah. that we have had government campaigns yeah. also yeah. pushing smoking yeah. rates down. Oh, completely. Yeah. It's been dramatic. It's been and dramatic, that, that's yeah. one of the reasons we've plunged down the league ladder. Yes. There's no doubt about that. And the PBS system. We in Norway and Australia have sort of reduced their risk. This is as of five or six years ago. I haven't looked at the latest data. More than any other country, 
we, you know, we, people think of the Scandinavians as being very healthy, but they had high risk. And the, the Finns were world leaders back in the 60s and what, 70s. Were they heavy smokers there? Uh, average high. cholesterol was about seven. Right. And yes. I think they had quite a high smoking rate, yes. but very high cholesterols. What about the LDLs? Well, it's well it's it will have been dominantly LDL. LDL, yeah. 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 And, um, and they've had major community health programs directed, and they brought their average um, LDL levels down very substantially, and so they've come came down the leap ladder. Whereas some of those countries, Japan's still very low, but it's crept up a little bit. China, of course, and places like that are increasingly at risk. But coming back to what I was saying, Norway and Australia have really plunged down the league ladder, I think, more than anybody. Um, Are you uh, saying the PBS has had an influence on the PBS? PBS yes, the affordable medication. That's even, it's, again, that's a wonderful yeah. government. Yeah, initiative. which has been terrific. Which America, the United States doesn't seem to have. Well, I've got a few American patients <laughs> who would like to go back to America. These people have had substantial yes. heart attacks and they're, yeah. they're on a court of medication. They, they say if I went back to, one of them was from Oklahoma, if mm. I went back there, I wouldn't be able to afford the medication. Yeah, it's, um, it's so, an incredible environment, so really, the medical system. It is. I, I don't yeah. think New Zealand's all that generous either, eh? Yeah. Their, their system is not as generous as our system. It's certainly, they have been, they've been a bit more sceptical at all levels than Australia. The Kiwis? About, yeah, only about lipid lowering, about... Really? And the Brits were. I'm not sure how the Brits are doing in, on the league ladder now, um, but um, they have come down substantially. The, mm. uh, one thing we hadn't mentioned was secondary prevention in women because women were d- did more poorly yes. and women have a quite a high – it is still a pr- it's the dominant cause of death in women. Just things occur 10 years later. But women having a heart attack do more poorly in the, in the next year, the next five years, their death rate's higher. Do we know why that is? Well, it's partly been – initially it was just that, oh, the most cardiologists, the females and they pay, uh, are males and they paid all this attention to the f- – and, and the women were a bit more neurotic and they got less – they definitely get less interventions. Not that I think the interventions would be all – but I think they just had less interest taken in them. Um, we don't really know the answer. It is partly at a primal level. Their coronaries behave differently. The blood pressure is a bit less than males? Their, their blood pressure tends to be a bit less, um, but – I don't think that's the issue. Their coronary arteries are smaller. They're more tortuous. They're more vasospastic. Mm. Uh, they have less epicardial obstructive disease, and yet they do more poorly. So there's probably something more at a microvascular level. Mm-hmm. We forget the microvascular. Mm. You know, it might be, f- you know, the, the, <clears throat> the stent doctors, you know, will have all yeah. the arteries open. Yeah. Fine if the large coronary, coronary arteries are open, but then the blood's getting through the large arteries. But if it hits a roadblock when it gets to the microvascular mm. system, mm. It's, it's, it, there's a problem, especially if the microvascular system's mm. more vasospastic. Yes. So how, how do you intervene to help that microvascular system? By some of the interventions that are just yes. better diet. Yeah, better diet, diet, better blood pressure, better exercise, yes. better and just glycemic spending control. a bit and, and glycemic control, spending mm. more time on them. I think they had less mm. time spent on them generally. Probably mm. if they had less time in hospital, less coronary interventions, they probably had less time at every point. Anyhow, there's been a quite a steep drop in the last five or ten years in America in the in in their enhanced mortality rate with more interest taken. And there's a group of mm. Mm. Female cardiologist in Australia now. Um, Sarah Zaman, who was with us for a few years, gone back to to New South Wales. She was one of the group leading that more intense interest in mm. how should we manage women differently and where do we? Because some of it is not just neglect. Some of it is actually at the coronary artery level. Coronary arteries that behave differently. Mm-hmm. We see more of that scad in 
yes. females. Yeah, yeah. We see more, a lot more Takatsubo. Mm. It's this sort of heart that after acute stress. Is it the broken heart? Yeah, the broken heart broken syndrome, heart syndrome. syndrome. Develops this ballooning abnormality that then recovers. Mm-hmm. So women do, there's definitely sex differences in the way the coronary arteries behave. Well, so that was something that's... Well, where do you see, do, do you see, you know, kind of a final note, what secondary prevention, where do you see the future uh, moving? More tighter LDL control? Uh, what, you know, what, what sort of direction do you well, think? I think we're doing fairly well there. Uh, we certainly know that statins at any age reduce risk and it's not, so it's not something that you've told the update and above the don't worry about it. Plus, you've got the benefit. Pretty consistent 20% reduction in risk of stroke mm. with statins in all those statin, major I, statin trials. I think I think the American Heart Association, they weren't promoting statin use or lipid yeah. over the age of 74, yeah. which is rather yeah. interesting, which is not, I mean, we don't, I don't know that we think like that in Australia necessarily, no. do we? I mean, I don't, I think they should stay on their statins and sometimes. Long term. Yeah, long term. Yeah. Partly for that. Because the risk can, it just continues yeah, yeah. and increases. Uh, They've shown okay. they could develop coronary plaque. Why should they not continue to yes. develop it? If there aren't any adverse yeah. effects. Yeah. But blood pressure becomes more and more important as we get older as a predictor of what could go wrong, heart failure and stroke. Yes. And, and, and I, you know, I emphasise to people, we've, you've moved from a phase where your heart's proved pretty safe for the next 10 years where really number one is preventing stroke. And so, and how do you, how do you prevent stroke? Well, you know, blood pressure's really vitally important. Yes. Cholesterol of moderate importance. Exercise is probably just as important as o- cholesterol. Opening up those vascular beds. Opening up those yeah, vascular yeah. beds. Um, yeah. the, the vascular health, it's just such an important... Oh, yeah. Coming back to what I said earlier. Consideration. You know, the athlete with the supremely efficient vascular system, we can improve things. We can improve arterial stiffness at the age of 80 with things like activity, lowering mm-hmm. salt. We used to think that hardened arteries in 80-year-olds were unchangeable immutable but we now know that you know if you measure pulse wave velocity people in their 80s on low salt diets exercise programs yeah pulse wave velocity goes down in other words their arteries are less stiff yes and which has an anti-heart failure effect and my feeling is that it's it's the age is irrelevant you know Mm. it's it's, all humans should be treated Mm. exactly in in an equal and considered way john thank you so much for taking us through secondary prevention (laughs) i I would like to ask you one question though before (laughs) i let you go because I know you're a very keen sailor, and I did uh, I did notice you disappearing out through the heads in a very, very rough wild weekend a few weekends ago. So it's really nice to see you back. Yeah, uh, you, you sailed out from the United Kingdom on a boat, uh, Merlin. Yeah. Merlin. It, yeah. It is, I mean, that was an incredible experience. The mid-1970s, yeah. You brought that boat out by yourself, yeah. um, having not had the long experience. With well, right. well, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I went from dinghy sailing to Merlin sailing, so it was a sort of in at the deep end, so to speak. <laughs> you were harbouring a fugitive, that's another story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you harboured an American yeah. fugitive. We had the American the fugitive, and <laughs> re-entering the United States through the, the American virgins, the, yes, the went, soft underbody of America. If you're an illegal, <laughs> if you're wanted by the, the police, that was the way to get back into America. Hitch a ride in Australia, but yeah, you, you yeah. went across, went down to the Canary Islands, the butter was melting, you turned right, <laughs> went across uh, to the West Indies, went through the, uh, the the Panama. The Panama Canal, which was a highlight of the trip. Yes. You go from just yes. turbulent West Indies trade winds through into the Pacific, which yes. was Pacific and calm. It would have been 
such an experience, banned from going to the Galapagos Islands. Mm, that's right. Um, and then you hit, was it Rockhampton? Where did you hit? Ma, we went to, well, we went to the Marquesas, which was terrific. We had yeah. 40 days from Panama to the Marquesas. So you half, the west, the eastern half of the Pacific has virtually no islands apart from the Oscar. But so the Marquesas is the start of French Polynesia. Had a month there without an engine. The big end bearings in the engine went. Um, so that was a bit nerve wracking. And then from there, we went through the society groups to Namia and re entered at Bundaberg. You must have been incredibly experienced by the stage. I was quite experienced by then. <laughs> <laughs> We've re bought the old boat back, and my son foolishly persuaded me to rebuild her at vast how, expense. How, how have you seen Merlin? Uh, Merlin reborn. Yeah, yeah. And she's the one we just that took us down to King Island and Three Hummock Island and Bass Strait in bad weather recently. You feel very confident in the boat, but I'm not as strong as I used to be. And uh, <laughs> the boat's a lot stronger than I am. <laughs> but it was a good experience. We left that Bass Strait trip a bit late. We, it was cold and windy. and You suddenly hit the westerly storms. Yeah. Um, John, I hope you get plenty more sailing experience in. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining me again today. That's so a pleasure, Luke. Thank you for joining with me and the very erudite and charming mariner and cardiologist, Dr. John Council. I really do like discussing physiology and cardiological matters with John. He's been a tremendous mentor to all the physicians and cardiologists in southeast Melbourne for such a long time. It was a real honour to have him as part of this podcast series. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.